Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast, where we discuss films from every genre. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast. His name was the Knight Rider. Think of him every time you look up in the sky. Today we are reviewing Mad Max. The first original from 1979. That's right. The first installment in our Mad Max retrospective series leading all the way up to Mad Max Fury Road and possibly a sequel in the future. I don't know. We'll talk Mm -hmm. about it. We're not sure yet. So we are taking just a small break from our M. Night Shyamalan retrospective series. So if you're wondering, hey, why am I not listening to The Sixth Sense right now? We'll get to that in about three weeks because we, uh, before that, we will also be reviewing Pet Cemetery. Yes, exactly. Right before the Sixth Sense, and that really would it really kind of kickstarts the actual retrospective that people, that people would know of mm-hmm. with M Night. That's but true. yes, a couple weeks from now, actually, about yeah, it'd be both two weeks after this recording, after this is released, then we'll get back into M Night. But first, we have Mad Max Two, followed by. Pet Cemetery, the original Stephen King uh, adaptation. Now, I am a complete, well, maybe I shouldn't say complete. I'm close to being a newbie to the Mad Max franchise. I have seen Fury Road because of its Oscar presence. I went ahead and saw it, and then I got the Blu-ray for Christmas not that long ago, probably two years ago now. I've seen that movie at least twice, possibly three times. Now, as for the rest of the Mad Max films, I've never seen them, except this one I've seen, I th- I think, 30 minutes of it or so. And it was like one Sunday morning. I was getting ready for church. I thought, hey, I don't want to miss out on this movie. It's streaming right now. I don't want it to go away. So I was watching it while getting ready kind of weird i know not many people would associate mad max with getting ready for church or going to church so but nevertheless that was my extent of mad max and until alan said hey let's do the retrospective i said sure cool i would be really intrigued to go back and watch these movies i know people quote thunderdome and I know many people really do love these movies as kind of a cult classic. Yeah, and I was kind of the same way. I watched Fury Road first. Uh, I had always known about Mad Max, and it was more popular when it when Fury Road came out because it had been like 30 years since we had had a Mad Max, uh, anything Mad Max related. So, yeah, I first saw Mad Max Fury Road in theaters. That was actually really cool to see it in theaters. I remember really enjoying it. Uh, and then I'm pr- and I bought it. Actually, it took me a while to buy it on Blu-ray uh, because I didn't have the money at the time to buy Blu-rays uh, or really anything to watch them on. So yeah, I watched Mad Max f- first, and then I think it maybe around the same time it was streaming, and I said, "Hey, what's this?" And I saw that it was the original Mad Max, and I watched it. And I remember being very confused by it because it was not like Fury Road. It's they're quite different movies for different reasons. So my initial reaction was cool, but this is really weird when I first watched it. Oh, about oof. I want I want to say about two years ago, maybe. Uh, that's probably when I saw it. I think it may have been on Prime is where it was. So yeah, that was my initial reaction. Was this is strange? This is very weird compared to at least the original to at least Fury Road. 
Right. I thought the exact same thing. And I fear for those of you who have seen Fury Road, you will know that it's most you most likely won't be bored watching that movie. Now, as for this movie, it takes a bit of a different approach with uh, how it paces the movie or whether or with its different tones so i was really thrown off by that too so when i'm sitting down watching the first 30 minutes and i'm confused because somehow i remembered i won't give any spoilers away just yet but i remember there becoming a scene and somehow i missed a another chunk of the movie and i saw this scene i don't know if i skipped ahead or not but i don't know so i never returned to it after that i always thought yeah, I might, but from what I saw, I was not overly eager to get back to that movie as quick as I could. But for this series, I did come back to it, and we'll see if my thoughts have changed. Yeah, and it's, it's kind of interesting, too, because back in 79, there had never really been a movie anywhere close to this. This is very much a experimental film, in, I guess, is the, some of the best way to put it. That's kind of how... Uh, the director put it, George Miller, is that it's very much a experimental film. It does take off of the 1973 oil crisis, especially what was happening in Australia at the time, which kind of makes sense because it's set in Australia. Uh, and so that was where the main inspiration came from, is this oil crisis around 1973 that really hit Australia pretty hard and really the whole world. But more, uh, also more specifically, the there's a lot of apparently a lot of crazy drivers on the road around this time. Mm. I'm not so sure about the infrastructure when it came to how the roads were handled in Australia around this time, but apparently that did also work itself into the script as part as some inspiration. So yeah, at the time this was a, I think it had like a three hundred yeah three hundred fifty thousand dollar budget to around four hundred thousand. This not clear how how much it is, but they, we do know it's around there, and it made back a hundred million worldwide, which at the time was I think one of the mo- I know it's one of the most uh, like successful films in terms of making its money back but definitely at the time the most successful australian film that was released yeah and it sounds like it was quite a bit more successful than another three hundred fifty thousand dollar, mostly independent project that came out in 1979 halloween right which was extremely successful it grossed 47 million at the box office but you said this grossed twice that yeah 100 million worldwide and just about five and a half million in just australia alone so that's some really good numbers for a movie that only had uh not even half a not even half a million dollars in a budget oh yeah that's very impressive and it's also pretty impressive because i'm pretty sure this is george miller who directed and created the film pretty sure this is his first movie so, yeah, I guess it is. I guess before this, he just made short films. Uh, and, yeah, Mad Max was his uh, first theatrical release, I suppose. So, yeah, I do know that he made a short film before this with a guy that also helped him out with Mad Max. Uh, his name is Byron Kennedy. Uh they both kind of came up with the idea of Mad Max, and Byron Kennedy was also a film student, which is how we kind of got how George Miller got into all of this. And so 
he also based a lot of what happens in this movie off of some car accidents that he's seen because he worked in the hospital, which is where his inspiration, some of his inspiration came from. Is he got to see a lot of a lot of aftermath when it comes to accidents and car accidents and things like that. So he got he based a lot of his inspiration off of what he was seeing, and then him and Byron Kennedy came up with the idea, got enough funding eventually after the short film that won a lot of awards and getting some more money off the more funding and distribution companies, they were able to kickstart what would become as Mad Max. So yeah, this, I guess, is his first movie. He was always interested in film, it sounds like, but uh, he was a bit held back from his hospital career, uh, at least in the beginning. It took him like, I want to say four to eight years to get it. Yeah, eight years to uh, get Mad Max launched after the release of their short film. Yeah, that would account for why he was 34 years old. Yeah, for yeah, it would. That's kind of old for a first-time director to be coming onto the scene. Now, I know, you know, that's not always the case, but nevertheless, I was surprised to see for his first film he was 34 years old. Yeah, and even better, he's much older in uh, in Fury Road because mm-hmm. he did fully direct that, which is even, in my mind, a bit more impressive as well because he's getting up there towards his, I guess it would be closer to 70. Uh, maybe even 80 at that point when he made Fury Road. Yeah. And after Mad Max, George Miller became an incredibly successful director with yeah. multiple Oscar wins, many nominations for movies you would be surprised about. I already mentioned Mad Max Fury Road, but he did win the Oscar for Happy Feet, the children's animated film that was a george miller that he won the oscar for for best animated picture i believe he also had his uh children's live action film about a a trans species pig something like that the pig wants to be another animal i don't know i've seen the movie when i was when i was younger it's called babe that was up for like best picture of the year i think and he he, which is nuts that's a little shocking it's there's always one of those weird years where like oh babe is up against a clockwork orange and it's it's like (laughs) oh okay (laughs) yeah um not really those movies did not go up against each other but you you get what i'm saying um so yeah it's pretty interesting that george miller he either has He's either up for the Oscar for some insane action film or some kind of fun kids movie. (laughs) Right. And to say that uh, the filming process was almost as crazy as the movie it was trying to portray uh, is, I would say, a fairly accurate statement. Uh, George Miller came out and said that their, their way of producing this movie was kind of... Uh, it was, the way he, I guess the phrase that he used was guerrilla filmmaking mm. because they were supposed to have the schedule was originally 10 week process a 10 week shoot where i think 6 of those weeks were for primary shooting and then the last 4 were for secondary and turns out on day 4 the actress who was playing max's wife originally mm. was injured in, a, in an accident and so they had to replace her mm. and that set them back 2 weeks wow. And ended up, it took them six weeks for both units, so 12, 12 weeks in total, and, to, and an additional two more weeks to do reshoots. Another issue was they only had one camera. They wanted to shoot it in a wide anamorphic lens, and the only one that was available that actually worked was a Todd AO. <laughs> and it was the only one that existed. So they shot this entire movie on one camera. Mm. 
And when it came to editing, uh, they think one of the editors that was hired, his dad built a makeshift editing bay <laughs> and they edited in his house. It went through, I think, th- it went through, I think, four or five people in total because the original editor was Tony Patterson, who was credited for editing it. Then he had to leave and George Miller and Clay and Cliff Hayes came in and then it eventually was finished up by Miller and Kennedy at the very, when it was all finished. But Tony Pedersen did get the uh, credit for editing. I think he did most of it. And to make matters even worse uh, in terms of how this whole process came about, they didn't have enough money to get a filming permit. And so they kind of just began shutting down roads uh, without a permit to shoot things. And eventually the police department said, hey, that's kind of interesting. So they started helping them out, I think free of charge, if I'm not mistaken. And they helped them out by closing the roads, helping close the roads for them so they can shoot things. Uh, and I believe one of the, the biker gang that's in this movie, Toe Cutter's Biker Gang, uh, is an actual biker gang in Australia uh, for the most part. I think there's a few hired actors in there. But the bikes that you see are their actual bikes and they didn't have enough money to pay for air travel. So they had to ha- they had them drive from Sydney uh, which is where they were start where they were at down to Melbourne, which is like eight and a half hour drive from one to the other on their own bikes because they couldn't pay for them to travel there. So it's all kinds of a mess when it comes to how this movie is made, which almost parallels what it's trying to portray. Yeah, I did read that they didn't have permission for certain locations to shoot on. Yep. I also read that some of the cast was paid in beer. Did you see that also? Yep. Yeah, there is a uh, one of the truck drivers. It may have been I forget if he was in the movie or not, but one of the drivers that they used, he they paid him like a few dollars and then in the case of beer, just to do an acting job for a little bit. Uh, yeah, so they were very short on on money for making this movie. Also, I did want to mention that this is Mel Gibson's second film. His first film was an was another Australian movie called Summer City, which came out in 1977, and he was only 21 years old when that movie came out, and by the time this movie came out, he was at the ripe young age of 23, and when, I, when you first see his face on screen, I thought, whoa, I have never seen Mel Gibson this young. Yeah, he's, he's more, he's known more now for being a lot older. <laughs> but yeah, this is a very, very young Mel Gibson. And I know that they got, they wanted to get an American actor. That way they would, it would help a lot with sales when it came to uh, other countries and theaters renting their film. So it went through one, it went through an original American actor, but then he dropped out and he couldn't do it. Mm. And so it eventually went to Mel Gibson and that's how he got the role. And at the time he was not as popular as he is no. now, but he was kind of on, he was, I guess, kind of on the rise and this did help him out. Sure. Uh, become more of a famous actor yeah and i know he's remembered for much bigger projects the passion of the christ braveheart just to name a few but nevertheless i would still say for those who know mel's career he is still known for his role as mad max yes absolutely i'm i'm pretty sure in the it was the original three mad max mad max 2 and and mad max beyond thunderdome it's all max himself is portrayed all by mel gibson in all three of those movies and only changed recently with max's portrayal from tom hardy in this newest one but we'll get to that one in a few weeks i would say it would be cool to see mel gibson incorporated somehow into a mad max movie 
because I still think he could do a really good job. Yeah, it'd be very interesting to see him return to Max as a as a character, being how old he is. That'd be interesting to see. Well, before Alan gives you the plot, listeners, we want to make sure that you know we will be spoiling the film. So if you haven't seen Mad Max yet, go ahead and click pause, go watch the movie, and I do highly re- recommend watching the movie with subtitles. Yes, <laughs> especially when it comes to the radio on the background. Yes. You, you, if you want to catch that, you'd need subtitles. Yeah, the radio is essentially inaudible <laughs> without the yeah, subtitles. a lot of the scenes, yeah. Yeah. So go ahead and watch it with subtitles. I recommend that. You will thank me. It'll give your viewing experience much more enjoyment because it'll be easier to just understand what's going on. Go ahead, watch the movie, come back and click play right now, and you will be ready to discuss Mad Max with us. Set a few years from now, Mad Max tells the story of a world on the brink of societal collapse. A member of the berserk motorbike gang named Knight Rider has stolen a cop car after escaping captivity. After three police units fail to stop Knight Rider's joyride, they call in Max, their best cop. Max attempts to stop Knight Rider, but the gang member flies into a wreck, flipping the car, causing it to explode, killing both Knight Rider and his girlfriend with him at the time. Max returns to the Halls of Justice, where he meets with a couple of mechanic nuts who show Max their newest project, a, the newest V8 pursuit vehicle, one of the final, one of the last remaining V8s in existence. Turns out, Fifi, one of the police directors, helped acquire the parts for this muscle car in order to keep Max on the force. Max has been thinking about quitting for a good for a, for a good while lately to focus on his family. Meanwhile, the biker gang arrives in a, into town to retrieve the dead Knight Rider. While there, the gang start to chase a young couple. They destroy their car, and it is implied that they raped and soon they, they raped them soon afterwards. Max and Goose come across the, the scene later and arrest Johnny the boy, who was left behind after the after the biker gang left. But they later release him when neither the victims nor the townspeople show for trial. This causes Goose to lose his cool. Later on at the club, one of the gang members tampers with Goose's bike, which causes him to crash when he rides it later on in the next day. Luckily, Goose is okay and borrows a friend's truck to return to the station with his bike. However, Goose is intercepted by Johnny the Boy and Toe Cutter, who caused the truck to flip and to begin to leak oil. Dro- Johnny drops a match and lights Goose on fire, burning him to a crisp. After seeing Goose's body at the hospital, Ma- Max tells Fifi that he is indeed quitting this time. Fifi convinces Max to take a vacation to think it over, which Max accepts. So Max, Jess, and Sprague, their child, go on vacation, but Jess is a run-in with Toe Cutter's gang when Max waits for the tire to repair when the tire repair to finish. Max and family speed to a friend's farm, hoping to hoping is far enough away. But this also turns out to not be the case when both Jess and Sprague are run over by one of the one of the gang members. Sprague's dead on arrival, and it sounds like Jess is going to be alright, yet Ma- this causes Max to become, well, mad. Max puts on Max returns to his black black leather police outfit and takes the and takes the newly built V8 V8 pursuit vehicle that was shown earlier and begins hunting down the members of Toe Cutter's gang. Max finds Johnny the boy at the scene of another overturned vehicle. Max handcuffs Johnny's leg to the leg to the car and sets up a crude time-delayed fuse, giving Johnny two options, either cut, either attempt to cut through the metal chain and be free at the expense of most likely having the car explode before he, before he gets through, or faster or the faster route, cutting off his own foot. Max drives away in his car as the car explodes behind him as credits roll. Now, we'll talk more about it when we get to it, but I did find it interesting when I saw the movie that 
the focus is shifted or maybe it's not really ever shifted from the big bad from toe cutter to johnny because that is much more of a kind of a final showdown you could say between the two and that's really where the 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 uh, the focus is on when he f- like kind of fights the quote bad guy at the end i did think that was an interesting choice yeah, it is very interesting that the big bad is not really the big bad mm-hmm. in this movie. It's more of uh, his one of his followers, his youngest follower, Johnny the Boy. That's where the main focus is in terms of the villain here in the story. Now, not to say that Toe Cutter is completely in the background because he's very much in control of most of everybody in his gang. But most of the focus is on Johnny, not so much Toe Cutter. And so it, and so it is kind of interesting to see uh, the movie focus on Johnny more than you would – I guess no one, more than you would think because – Typically, it would be that if the big bad guy is the big bad guy, then they focus on the big bad on the big bad guy more than they would anybody else. That would just kind of make the most sense. But at the same time, this is also very much a experimental film, so I can see why they decided to focus on more of his protege than the actual villain, more of the guy who is being fed by the big bad. Uh, than the big bad being the one who is the real focus of villainy. Now, as for it being an experimental film, the way that I see that is more so with its filming style. It kind of speeds up certain scenes a bit. It's shot incredibly well. With the car chase sequences, you can really feel the speed and the impact when cars are hit or somebody's run over and things explode that's really heavy hitting part of the film i don't really see the storytelling per se as experimental what what do you think alan no i'm absolutely with you i don't think that the story itself is necessarily anything so nutty aside from maybe the setting but uh I would say that some, even some of the editing in terms of how the editing tells the story is also rather experimental because we really don't get Max's drive to try and stop this gang until about halfway through, which is when Goose gets lit on fire. That's really the, the biggest time when Max decides to take on the gang, or in this case, he just has to run away. But that's like the one of the things that leads him, starts leading him into pursuing the gang, which not long after his family dies. So it's... It's very much, uh, I would say it's experimental also in terms of how it's edited as well, like uh, how it tells the story through editing. Because, yeah, it is interesting because to see Max not really do much until about the halfway point. That's when really when the movie starts gets, starts getting really deep into Max's character arc. So I would say in that sense, it was also rather experimental not to say that the story itself is experimental but just the way that it's edited yeah i was surprised as well to find that particular story element to come in more so later into the film at least it felt like that for me and this is not a long film yeah. at all it's an hour and a half ish yeah it's it's a, i think there are two versions there's a there's the edit, tv edit which is like an hour and 28 and then your the basic, I think the theatrical release is like an hour and 33. So yeah, right around an hour and a half. It's not long at all. Well, we, we find out that this scoot jockey gang is, they said they're, they're looking for Max. They're like coming after him. Um, and I believe the reason they're doing that is because, is that because uh, Toe Cutter died? Or not Toe Cutter, um, 
the Knight Rider died, or he did he did something to one of them that I've I've got it down in my notes here. I'm just skipping ahead a bit, but I was just making a comment on yeah, I was surprised that they're like they're gonna come after you, but they don't really seem to ever come after him. They mostly mostly just kind of run into each other eventually. Yeah, it's yeah, their meetings, especially towards the end here, rather at least they're portrayed as being rather coincidental mm-hmm. that they just happen to be in the same place at the same time. Uh, we, we never really follow them too much, uh, especially here in this latter half. Uh, they kind of just end up finding our main characters here. Really, the only reason that they're going after him is because they they think that he killed Knight Rider, when okay. in reality it was more of Knight Rider's fault that he ran into the accident and <laughs> killed himself and his girlfriend. <laughs> so it it's, yeah, it's... Th- they do kind of focus on him a bit more in the first half, which is very much more of a setup thing than anything else. But especially in the second half, it's it comes off as being coincidental uh, yes. than I guess maybe what it's trying to portray, I'm assuming. Now, I will say this movie opens positively and negatively for me. At first, it opens negatively because I am worried that any movie that opens with a sex scene is going to not it's not setting the tone right for me as for the caliber of the film because i've had bad experience with this before the one example that comes to mind is the horror film your next have you seen that one i have not but i've definitely heard of it okay well you're not missing out so i don't recommend you watch it it's got a kind of funky 80s throwback score which is pretty good and it's kind of has a decent twist but it's really nothing special it's forgettable but that movie opens with a sex scene and i'm like what who opens with a sex scene so technically that's not like the first shot of this movie because we see the like the halls of justice or whatever it's like dilapidated showing the civil society has broken down but then we see this cop watching this couple have sex in a field through his gun scope and I'm like, uh-oh. But then right after that, and it's really not graphic or it doesn't linger on it. And then the cop gets a call that this nutcase Knight Rider has stolen the car. And then we get an awesome opening chase scene. Yeah, it does not take long for this movie to get into the action. Uh, but I think it's about 30 seconds from the first shot to the radio call coming in that, hey, uh, there's a guy who stole this cop car. Go get him. And then we're right into it. And it's a good 10 minutes. It's a good 10-minute uh, action scene between all the cops chasing down Knight Rider uh, as he rides through town or gets around town, I suppose. Yeah, so it's a long, it's a long, extensive, uh, con- a long, extensive scene, especially considering it's only an hour and a half. Yes, that is very true. This scene does take up a decent chunk of the movie. I did check the clock. It was just slightly over 12 minutes of the opening of the film with this chase scene and they do a good job of holding our attention they do a good job of teasing mel gibson as max they kind of keep cutting back to him from the side in his car as "Ooh, he's the guy you don't want to mess with he's kind of the terminator that's going to come in and uh, cause a lot of trouble for the situation and of course to make matters even more scary they throw in a baby crawling out into the street and oh my goodness are they gonna is this movie gonna run over a baby in the first five minutes <laughs> you know well not in the first five minutes but maybe a bit later 
Uh, yeah, that's true. They will, they will do that eventually. They will up it. Uh, this lady who lets her baby just crawl into the street completely neglects him. It looks like she's talking to Mario. They don't show him <laughs> more than once, but I'm like, okay, the guy's dressed in red. Looks like mm-hmm. red overalls, possibly, with a Mario type mustache, a mop of hair on his head. Looks like she's talking to Mario. I guess I didn't notice his mustache, but that is that is quite funny. That would kind of fit with how this movie is this movie's tone, I guess. Is <laughs> one of the main one of the characters here talking with a character who looks very much like Mario. One interesting thing about this opening, though, is I guess there's a couple of interesting things, but in terms of cinematography, um, they break a cinematography, they break a filmmaking rule, which is this thing called the thirty degree rule. Basically, what that means is when you have one shot and a next shot, they the camera has to move at least 30 degrees one way or the other. That way, the audience isn't confused when it jump cuts to the next to the next uh, to the next take or the next shot. They do that a lot here where they don't move the camera in terms of its angle at all because they'll switch from one car to the next car and the angle has not changed a bit. But mm-hmm. the actors have. I mean, you can tell when they've changed. But it is very interesting to see that this happens not just once, but like a few times, especially in this opening. I think it happens maybe three or four times uh, in this chase scene where the camera doesn't the camera angle doesn't really change. It's just it just kind of jump cuts to the next uh, pursuit vehicle. I found that to be very interesting, something that kind of works um, and also is something that I'm sure that it, was, it feels like it was deliberate. But at the same time. Uh, and I'm surprised that it works as well as it does, given uh, the fact that it's not supposed to be a rule that you're supposed to break unless you're really going, unless you're really going to break it. So I found that to be quite kind, of, kind of interesting, uh, at least in terms of cinematography and how they decided to shoot this action scene. That is interesting. I I didn't think about that. It was not uh, like an issue for me. Of following the car chase i could follow it just fine and i think the as far as when the car chases are shot they're shot really well because yeah. you can feel the speed of the road you can feel the the intensity when they get close to each other and then the impact when it happens so i do remember that from kind of my first viewing i remember how hard hitting um, these car chases were and especially when they just like tear into a van they just like crash straight through it um, that's or it's like the you the trailer home in the middle yeah. of the road or something. Yeah, that was really like wow. I was shocked. Right, and considering the budget that the very tight budget that they were on, it's even more impressive in my mind that they were able to, that they were able to pull off a lot of these things uh, because even though they had very little money, mm-hmm. yeah, it is also yeah. Inter- also interesting too. Uh, once again, in terms of cinematography, about how many wide shots they have because most of the time. In at least in modern film, there's a lot of tight shots to kind of build intensity, and you don't see it doesn't do a wide shot like when the car runs through that motorhome and just demolishes it. You you see something like that, I'm sure a bit more often. But in terms of how much they want to show off what they can do, you never really see it like this. It's very different mm-hmm. than what modern film does today. Now, as for the soundtrack of this movie, it's kind of weird. At least that's what I thought, especially in this opening chase sequence. It was kind of puzzling the music choices. Later on during the peaceful montage, it just felt very much like a product of the time. But as for kind of, 
I don't know if you could call it the main theme or Max's theme or something, where it is a bit of that more kind of like foreboding, um, you know, intense intensity of the music. I, I did like that piece of composition. Yeah, I'd say that there's some good composition here. And the score is done by a guy named Brian May. Mm. Not the guy from Queen, different guy. <laughs> but he wanted, Miller wanted a Bernard Herman kind of sound of music, which is a bit more gothic is what he yes. wanted. Yes. So that does kind of reflect, especially I would say in Max's theme here, uh, that kind of style, especially that foreboding sense that it has. I would say for the most part, the f- score is good. There are times when it really doesn't work for me, but I would say some of the best moments probably are when they use Max's theme here at the beginning and then especially at the very end, I think they, they do a pretty good job at uh, using that score to its full potential here. So one interesting thing I noticed um, watching this is this car that Knight Rider takes is rather similar to the v8 that he's given or i guess he steals uh later on especially in that in that last act uh it's very interesting that's also a v8 um and it kind of shows that knight rider himself is a nut and i would say that that he becomes more of a parallel to what max is going to become later in the movie which is definitely his fear throughout the entire film that he's going to become one of these crazy people out in out in the wild and that he doesn't want to be that but in the end, he kind of becomes something like that. And this opening kind of reflects and it's foreshadowing definitely what Max is going to become in the last act of this movie. Yes, that's a very good point where this kind of nutcase is wreaking havoc and Max is, Max is calm and collected to stop yeah. him. Whereas in the end, he is mad, not in the sense of angry, but in the sense of crazy. Right. And he does do that as well i was gonna bring up a point then i completely forgot it oh well i'll go on to something else um but back to what you were saying about the score there is it's almost bernard herman reincarnated especially during the sequence where jesse is going through the woods and the people are peeking out from behind the trees trying to you know intimidate her or chase her I, I made a note of that. I said, this sounds just like Bernard Herrmann was composing something f- for an Alfred Hitchcock movie. So that is one of the most intense sequences. I would say, honestly, a bit. I was a bit more on edge with that scene than any of the car chases because of this woman in potentially great peril. Yes, yeah, they do a pretty good job at... Uh, I would say... It does kind of write in the cliche that the girl here is kind of in need of saving. Um, again, this is just a kind of a product of his times. That's just how films were made in the day. But yeah, I would say that the scenes that she's in when she is in peril, especially in this last half of the movie, I think do a pretty good job at portraying how was she, I, at least raising the question, how is she going to survive in a world like this that's just off the deep end with Basically, everybody aside from, I guess, Max, because Goose, who seems to be level-headed there the first half, begins to lose it once he loses Johnny the Boy as a as a suspect. So, yeah, it is interesting to see how Max does react to this and how they do portray at least the wife, who seems also to be level-headed, uh, also having her in great peril, which is, once again, akin to how Max is going to respond there at the very end. 
I was disappointed with the end of this particular opening chase sequence because I felt like it was anticlimactic and not as good as the previous crashes because Knight Rider's engine like sparks out in a really insane way. That yep. was really cool to see his kind of car like tail fish out and flip out. But then we don't really actually see the actual crash. It does some really quick cutting and you just see mostly an explosion and then Max's yeah. reaction. So I was hoping for some to see the car run straight into it and blow up like we've seen prior. So I, I was a bit disappointed with that. Yeah, I'm kind of with you on this. I wonder if that would have if that was a budget thing where maybe they missed the shot or something along those lines. I have no way of knowing if that's true or not. But yeah, it does kind of leave a little bit to be desired compared to what we just saw 10 minutes ago, or at least in the last 10 minutes. So yeah, it is kind of anticlimactic. I'll be I'll be with you on that one. Although I do like the idea that it whatever happens to Knight Rider is not Max's fault, yet the gang still comes after him thinking that it absolutely is. Mm-hmm. I do like that aspect of it. But you're all right. The way that it ends is kind of like meh. Then compared, at least compared to what we've seen before. Okay, what do you think of these fade out cuts between, like fade out transitions between scenes? We have quite a few of them. Yes, yes, we do, and they often come with a tone change—a very hard <laughs> tone change. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like I said, like I mentioned in the background info section, it's uh, it's experimental. I mean, it's not <laughs> wild. Okay, don't get me wrong; it's not wildly experimental. It's it does take some liberties in terms of breaking some rules of filmmaking, but yeah, this is probably where I think that the film begins to falter quite a bit. Um, it is crazy. Don't get me wrong. Even in terms of how it's edited and how its tone shifts constantly, it is nuts, but it also comes to the question, the question of, is that good filmmaking, which experimental film can still be great filmmaking if done right. I think the problem here is more to do with the fact that uh, it's to- it's cha- it's changing the tone to too quick to a point where it's jarring than it is uh, an artistic choice. Yes, it is absolutely jarring, and I'm not even going to say that these fadeouts are experimental because maybe it is for doing it with a feature film but it's not doing that for tv because this is how tv episodes work where you will see something big happen and then it'll fade out and then it'll come back in at more of a tranquil event it will not pick back up in the same spot and this is exactly what this does and I was disappointed with this type of editing because this is this does give it a TV movie quality. And how could it not? Anytime something fades out, because that's how it happens. It fades out to commercial. Now, there are a few movies where that works, so I'm not completely saying that. But nevertheless, quite surprised we get that often and always with this kind of hard gear shift to a different, different mode. So... And then we then we pick back up with him, and it's peaceful now. His wife's playing the saxophone, and I'm thinking, what is this, Blade Runner? But Blade Runner came out after this. So, yep, it came out uh, three years after this, after this film was released. Yeah, that's very true. So Ridley Scott was clearly watching this, and he was like, <laughs> that's it. Harrison Ford, Mel Gibson, Perfect. saxophone, Blade Runner. Got it. Perfect. Yeah, it is strange that the it opens with the wife playing the saxophone. Mm-hmm. Um 
this never really comes back, and I also kind of didn't exactly expect it to when it was when they were showing this part off. It's weird. Again, it's strange. This whole film is just strange. Uh, but yeah, the saxophone is. I mean, it, it doesn't really fit within the tone of this movie, aside from maybe making this where he's at this very tranquil, peaceful lifestyle that he lives outside of his police career. Uh, I'm sure that's what they're going for, especially with the saxophone. It is weird, though, to have it in, especially right now, considering where we just came from, this really exciting uh, opening chase scene, and then cut to a uh, the wife playing a saxophone, and it's very peaceful and uh, and nice. It's a strange tone change, a very abrupt one. But then not long after this, we are introduced to the Scoot Jockey Gang, which is led by Hugh Keys Byrne, who plays the character Toe Cutter. And I gotta say, uh, Burns' performance just might steal the show. In fact, I'm going to say that, yeah. I would say his performance, he is so insane and creepy. His hair has like this yellow uh, flare up in the front of it. He's got like, one of his eyes are darker than the other. I don't know if that's makeup or some Mm -hmm. kind of contacts or something. But, and just the name Toe Cutter is a really kind of repulsive name. I mean, thinking thinking about cutting toes is such a not something something you don't want to think about. Something you feel like you would see in the ring yeah. video. Um, something just disturbing. Right. Yeah. The the names just kind of all around, especially with this gang, are very nutty. Because you have Johnny the Boy, which is his actual name. Uh, you've got Bubba. Toe cutter, just to give a few examples. The names here in this in this biker game are, are biker gang are very strange. And yeah, I think you're absolutely. I think you're. I'm with you on this one. Toe cutter's performance is very nuts, and probably one. It is one of the best in terms of how it portrays madness. Um, and it's very. It is kind of cool to see that toe cutter is essentially the polar opposite of Max in this story, and it's. Of course, it is leading us to ask the question of, is Max going to be able to hold himself together in this world where he is essentially the symbol of justice, or is he going to go insane as well as everybody else? Um, And so, yeah, you get this kind of portrayal of this stark opposite with Toe Cutter. Once again, very interesting that we're not, that the main focus is not on Toe Cutter, but it is on Johnny the Boy uh, more so. That would be is typically you wouldn't see that you would see the two main forces coming up against each other, up against each other more than you would a, a student of the uh, of one of the one of the uh, opposing forces. Also, in the scene, we get my favorite line of the movie when the I don't know, just the local town guy, local shop owner. <laughs> I just love how stone faced mm-hmm. he is, and he's just like looking around at the biker gang, and they're just asking him questions, and then he says like your friend coming in on the train and then all of a sudden toe cutter spins around and like grabs his face and he says his name was the night rider yep think of him every time you look up in the sky i have i've only like i said i saw this a couple years ago for the beginning i've never forgot that line i love that line it is a very funny line it's also kind of funny too because the uh the the guy that helps him out this old man in this scene from this town his flies undone Oh, uh, I noticed that when I think when they were walking up to the coffin, there's like a wide <laughs> shot of him kind of waddling up there. And I noticed him was like, I mean, it's a small touch, but it does kind of it does kind of lend to uh, just how the, this world works. It's very dirty. And That's he's 
also not everyone is uh, necessarily sane as Max is. Yeah, and I think we get a good introduction to the Scoot Jockey Gang because at first I'm mm-hmm. thinking they're very much like the Jets from West Side Story. They are just more so kind of ornery uh, ruffians instead of just kind of psychos. But then we quickly realize after they chase the couple in the hot rod mm-hmm. that, yes, this is more like the gang from A Clockwork Orange. And yeah. uh, I think they did a good job of kind of bringing that in. Clearly, George Miller, I, would, I wouldn't be surprised if he has seen both movies and was drawing inspiration from both films to be like, I kind of want my gang in this film to be like the Jets meet a Clockwork Orange gang. So I thought that was a good utilization of that. And because they are frightening, especially as we get more into it, they're just kind of these psychotic animals. And when they are chasing the hot rod, uh, the the film is sped up, which is a technique yeah. we see in Fury Road, which is used to great yeah. effect. There, yeah, both these movies, and I wouldn't be surprised surprised if, it, if it's used in two and Beyond Thunderdome. There's a lot of sped up footage in this. Uh, now, you some people have a big issue with sped up film. Uh, in this film, I think it works a bit more than what it would normally because it is portraying a lot of craziness. Uh, and I think in Fury Road, it works a lot more than it does here. But yeah, their sped up footage here is very interesting, especially the use that they, the idea that they would even think about using that, because that's usually a, especially how you portray it is typically a big no-no. You do see it more often in like older films, especially from the golden age. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the Three Stooges, is, the Three Stooges use it, use it quite a bit when it comes to some of their gags. So yeah, it's typically you, once again, breaking kind of a rule here, you don't really want to use sped up footage very often, if ever. Uh, and they use it quite often. They take a lot of liberties with how they use that sped up footage. But going back to the gang, it is interesting that they are, it's almost immediate once they get off their bikes that this gang is uh, pretty nuts, just like the Knight Rider was. And you kind of make that connection before even they make, before they even say the line that they're looking for the Knight Rider um, to this old man. When they get off their bikes and they all kind of start waddling around and like waiting and stuff. And then these two guys come out towards the middle of the street and start dancing and it's just it's all around just weird and so you kind of get this sense at least for me that they're related to the night rider in some way before they even give up the line that they're looking for their friend now they do arrest johnny who was left at this scene i was a right. bit confused why he was just sitting there talking deliriously as he usually does but nevertheless they arrest him but they quickly have to let him go because nobody showed up showed up at his court hearing. Oh. Yeah, they were wanting to get the couple that was uh, that was victimized and some of the townspeople that were there that kind of guess kind of witnessed them roll in. It's not really stated very well, but yeah, they wanted them to show up at the court and nobody did, and so the lawyers that were there said, "Yeah, you have no case," and they threw it out. Which is this in turn causes. Uh, their friend, I just forgot his name. Oh, Goose. This causes Goose to kind of go nuts. Yeah, it, it does set up Goose as like his own character, providing his own character arc yeah. within the greater arc, which Max comes into later. So Goose is kind of the catalyst for this whole situation here. And 
so they they do want to get after Goose. They want to kill him. More so, it seems like at first, than they want to kill Max, which is a little interesting considering previously they said, hey, Max, um, Thief told Max, hey, the Scoot Jockey Gang is looking for you. But then they're more so looking for Goose and they sabotage, um, they sabotage his motorcycle, right? Yeah, uh, I think when, yeah, when they're at the nightclub, uh, I, th- I want to say he's Johnny the Boy, but it's kind of hard to tell if it really is. Yeah. One of the gang members goes in and tampers with his bike. And then later, I, I want to say, I, I guess it would be his brakes because that's how he flies off of his bike later on <clears> when he <throat> takes it for a ride is he kind of, the brake, the brakes lock up and he flies forward. But yeah, they tamper with his bike, and that's what causes him to... Well, at first he's fine, because he is able to call his friend, but yeah. doesn't last very long after that. It's a bit unbelievable, I think, that he flies off of his motorcycle, and he is yeah. perfectly fine. I guess we're supposed to assume he kind of landed in this marsh area, kind of right. wet, so all these reeds and marsh broke his fall. And But what's even further more unbelievable is how did they know that Johnny – or I'm sorry. How did they know Goose would be coming back on this same road? It's this perfect time for them to – and they perfectly time it to throw something heavy into his windshield. Yes. Yeah. I'm like, is there only one road in Australia? Because whenever there needs to be a conflict, somehow they meet on the same road. <laughs> Yeah, it's one of those, it's really from here on when a lot of coincidences begin to creep their way too much into the story. Because, yeah, you, it, there's a lot of moving parts for the scene to really work out logically because you have both, you have, okay, you have Goose, his bike goes down, but then he's okay. And then you have his friend who just happens to be, I guess, close by or within calling distance. <laughs> and he gets his gets his car there and is able to drive his van, his truck wherever he's going to go and have Goose and Toe Cutter on that road be able to throw a brake iron at them, smash the windshield, causing them to flip. It's just a lot of moving parts to their plan, I guess. I don't even know if they really had a plan. Uh, at least when there was no one that was never really stated. But yeah, it's a lot of moving parts for it to work out logically. And I'm willing to give it some of it a pass, because this movie is just already kind of that way. But I will agree with you. This is one of the scenes where it's just like, oh, what? Well, and then to further confuse issues, Johnny has clearly stated he wants to murder Goose. Because he yeah. does the shooting. He says, I'm going to get the bronze. But then when Toe Cutter hands him the the like the match, he says, this is a threshold moment step through, which is a really good line. Then uh, Johnny says, this isn't what I want, which totally throws me off. What did he think they were going to do? I mean, they've been trying to sabotage him and kill him repeatedly and throw stuff through his windshield, cause him to crash. And then, of course, the logical thing is to just, you know, off him. But Johnny doesn't Johnny doesn't want to. Johnny is just a really odd character that we sometimes refer back to and sometimes don't throughout this movie. Yeah, I, I would go as far as to say, and this is maybe stretching a bit, but I would go as far as to say it's taking that step because Johnny is uh, the protege. Uh, Johnny is not, uh, no, Johnny is Toe Cutter's protege. 
Uh, he's very much a student. And so I would say that maybe him taking that step is a bit too far out of his comfort zone. I would say that even that saying that is a bit of a stretch given the tone of this movie. Um, either way, they linger on it for a while and he does end up tossing the match either by accident or on purpose and it lights uh, our friend Goose here on fire. But yeah, it is a strange thing to be focusing on, at least in this scene. Now, from here on out, the movie gets... <coughs> oh. oh, bless you. <laughs> Thank you. Now, from here on out, the movie just gets too weird for me or yeah. too all over the place with its tone until we kind of tighten it back up there towards the end. Because Max goes to St. George's Hospital to check up on Goose. And some of this music and how it's shot, especially when Max looks at Goose, it's like a 50s or 60s horror movie. And then when he wakes up, bolts up in bed with the light streaked across his eyes, ah, uh, that's not good. Yeah, I do like the image of Goose, like in this, like almost cradle position, with this blanket over him, and you just kind of hardly, you just really only see the outline of his of his right left, yeah, right leg and arm there. Uh, you you do get a, I do like that because you get a visualization, and afterwards you see his arm, his hand kind of pop out. And so you can kind of imagine, without the movie even showing you, what he what he looks like underneath that, underneath those sheets. But yeah, it takes it a step further when Max wakes up in bed and this like a red streak of light flies over his eyes and the music chimes in and everything. It's getting a bit, not a bit, but it's just really, really cheesy at this point, uh, especially with that one, especially with this one shot. And it's, yeah, this is when, for me, this is kind of where the movie begins to, fall apart a bit because we take a huge break for a quite a long quite a long period of time of the family going on vacation um and we don't do as much chasing as we were doing previously and it just kind of begins to slow almost to a halt at times of just how the story is progressing yeah you're absolutely right to me this feels like we like i mentioned kind of a 50s or 60s horror movie it feels like we've stepped into David Cronenberg's The Fly or something like that, where we see Goose's hand. And I do agree it is a nice image, but the way that it's ultimately played doesn't work with the movie, where Max says, that's not that's not Goose in there. To make it sound like he's just this monstrosity, like he's not a human being worth worth living, it's really odd. And then Max has clearly had enough um, he wants to get out before that turns out to be him, so he quits, and then we just jump into this odd montage, which is what I will say is just a product of the time, it feels mm -hmm. like, where him and Jess are living their life, and it seems weird because then right after this, he says, I've never been able to share my feelings with you. What? Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, th this... There's a lot of aspects to this movie where it's very much a product of the times. And I would say this entire sequence of them on vacation is probably the best example of that in this whole story. Is uh, kind of comes out of nowhere. It's kind of cheesy and it doesn't really fit with the rest of the movie, or at least in terms of tone or visual style. It's it's very strange the direction they take here, and for a, a good twenty minutes almost. Oh yeah, it's. To me, it seems like, I don't think this is exactly correct, but 
I guess in in like if you're going to logically piece it together, Goose Goose's um burning up and Max's quitting is the end of the first act. Max going on vacation and then the death of his wife and child are the end of the second act, and then him going after them is the very small third act. That's the way I see it anyway. Yeah, I could go as far as to say maybe there's even four or five acts here. Sure. Um, because just by the way that this movie is laid mm-hmm. out, I would definitely say that this this entire vacation sequence is an act. The very last part when he hunts on the gang is an act onto itself. The first 10 minutes, maybe even bleeding into the first 15 or so, is probably its own. I would say that there's maybe there could be a potential for four or five readings of different acts here. Once again, that would make a bit more sense to me because this is already kind of weird in general. Uh, rather experimental so but yeah it's either way it's a very oddly laid out movie just kind of in general which once again is really no surprise to me just kind of given what they were going for here and the only real character building depth we get for i would say anybody in this movie you can correct me if if i'm wrong but it's when um, Max and Jess are talking and he's having this really sweet reminiscing moment about him and his dad and he gives this really great line that says, I don't think he knew how proud I was just to be alongside him. I loved that line. And I did love this whole scene, although it doesn't seem to play into any other part of the movie or Max's character. Yeah, yeah there's a lot of stuff here that's that said that really doesn't, not just here, but I guess just in the movie in general, that doesn't really make it back anywhere else. Yeah, in terms of, and especially in terms of character building, this is really the only scene where we have any of that, aside from that small line where we hear that Max is wanting to quit, and he has been thinking about it for a while. Yeah, there really isn't much character backstory here with anybody, aside from maybe Max and a little bit of Jess. Um, the Mostly, the it's the story and the setting that they're going for. Uh, that is portrayed through these characters, not necessarily that the characters themselves have a backstory. It's kind of, I guess, left up to the imagination, especially when it comes to like Toe Cutter and his gang, where they came from, what they're doing here, and all, all those questions that would relate to that. Um, I would say that the characters are here more for world building than they are for being actual characters. Really, the only one that we see here, like I said, is Max and maybe Jess. Yeah, and I think it's a bit of an issue that we don't get more with Max, Jess, and Sprague. Because when... Okay, I do feel for Jess when she's in danger, but, you know, just like how Jess forgets Sprague, I forgot Sprague. I forgot they even had a kid. I mean, it's not enough just to give us this short montage and then show them resting we get almost zero scenes of max being a dad which i think is a bummer because he talks about how much he loved being with his dad and the time they spent together and as much as we get is just a montage and that's pretty much it so when sprog and jess do die and somehow they get run over by motorcycles which yeah you can't be run over by a motorcycle and the the motorcyclists still just keep on going. That was really- yeah. It's well, that was I. I saw that as just the gang doing that, and then they run on. They they ran off. But yeah, you're right. There's a lot of talk here of him being a dad, or 
of talk of back things that have happened in the past, but it's never really shown, nor is it not necessarily shown in terms of like a flashback or this not also not shown in terms of the present day, aside from maybe a montage. Yeah, Sprague in this movie <laughs> like completely disappears for a good 45 minutes almost. And then he's brought up again there when like in the middle of their vacation. And I even wrote my notes, where's the kid? I thought they had a kid. <laughs> and he just kind of magically shows up out of nowhere. Yeah, the kid, the relationships here are not built very well when it comes to making the audience feel things when they die, especially with uh, especially with Jess and Sprague. So when they do die, there isn't much emotional attachment there. Maybe some with Jess and Max, but even that I would say is very, is pushing it quite a bit uh, for there to be any emotional attachment between the two of them, especially when you're wanting to like feel his anger at the end here. Yeah, I did not feel anything when either of them died. I found it to actually be just a little silly that we see like Sprague's shoes go flying off and maybe something of hers, they just kind of go, woo, flying down the road. And it would have been a little more hard-hitting if we would have, they didn't have to show their deaths, but at least gave me a little more clarity. Like maybe they're going to drive by and club them or something. Or right. or do something because I just can't imagine people being run down by motorcycles. I just can't imagine that happening. Because if you like smack into a human body, you're going to crash. But none of these people crash. But I will say, although these are fairly mundane sequences uh, after Max quits, there's a bit of action here. And it ends with, I would say, a lot of intensity. And mm-hmm. it's first when they take the station wagon or whatever it is. To the mechanic. And this mechanic, this whole scene is pretty funny. I love how they talk. Toodle pip, you just trucking around. Yep. Wish I could do a bit of trucking myself. Uh, just very fun way of talking. But right after that, there's a great sense of foreboding. And I will say that's something this movie does well, especially during the second act, is create a very ominous feel that does make you uneasy as to what could occur to an uh, innocent woman and child. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's we're also once again we're also I th- I mentioned this earlier, but we're we're running on coincidental uh, <laughs> meet yeah. meetups here, especially like I mentioned. This is probably the worst of it is in this uh, is in this vacation sequence. It kind of gives a sense that the biker gang is following them, um, but once again, I think I think it's probably one of the film's biggest issues here is how clear it's trying is how clear it isn't being. Because, like you mentioned earlier, with the with the crash when they ran into Jess and Sprague, it's not clear enough, or it doesn't really give much clarity to make you feel a bit more. Here again, with a bunch of the biker gang just kind of following them around, there's not much clarity as to if they're following them or if it's completely coincidental. That's, I think, one of the film's biggest issues is, and at least especially in terms of uh, making sure that what it's trying to say is rather clear than it is. Uh, than it is just trying to, I guess, move the story along. Um, that's what I would say is probably one of the bigger issues here, which bleeds into a lot of other things as well. And I would say that's one of the biggest mess-ups with the screenplay is setting up in the first act that the Scoot Jockey Gang is after Max, and then they just happen to continually bump into each other. And the right. thing that I think could have made everything more cohesive and better impact is instead of having... 
the scoot jockey gang chase down the couple in that kind of hot rod car. This scene where um, Jess and Sprague go to get ice cream and then they run into the gang, that should have been moved to the first act, which could have gave us a feeling of they're coming after the whole family. Mm -hmm. And then we could have had that connection of they could have figured out, oh, Max and Sprague have a wife or yeah, you get what I'm saying. They're related. So then um, later on, there could have been a confrontation at the farm that makes more sense where he's like, hey, remember us? Okay, now we're back to kill you. Right. I think that probably would have made more of a cohesive story. Yeah, I, I agree with you that there's some more tidying up that I guess could be done here. Uh, still keep it as crazy as you want, but there could be some more tidying up that would help a lot with making things a bit more understandable or maybe a bit more clear as to what is trying to portray instead of, uh, I guess, not doing that. I did find it funny when she uh, drives off and and rips his arm off and she yeah. finds his, his hand hanging from the back of their car. Yep. That's, I believe that's Kundalini's. Yeah. Kundalini <laughs> is, that's his yeah. hand. And they do meet up with him and says, Kundalini wants his arm back. Uh, yes. That is pretty funny. It also kind of goes to show the once again just the madness of this world that she drives off so fast and he was hanging on so so much that just ripped his arm clean off. Yeah, and they do okay. This this whole scene, this transition scene to the farm gets a bit confusing. Yep. So this guy that they meet, the way I saw him, I could be completely wrong. He's kind of like this Australian marshal like we have u.s marshals here he seems to be you know a bit higher than the sheriff kind of has a wider district maybe somehow he knows max and is he the what they call the the dark one yeah i think that's what i have down here um i think is what they have done here yeah i as far as the story tells it's just a friend that they know okay. that apparently has protection uh, here on this little farm, which kind of ends up being not really the case because the gang finds them anyways. But yeah, as far as the story tells it, it's just a friend that they know. So there isn't okay. really much given to how or why they're here uh, or how they know that this farm is here or anything around that, those kind of questions. Yeah, this guy just says, go up to the farm and you'll be safe there. But the way he states right. it, at least the way I took it as, you guys should consider this. But then right. in the very next scene, they're going up there. And I thought, oh, okay. And I yeah. will say, them driving up to the farm feels super scary, although it's not supposed to be. The score, the lighting, and the camera work, it feels like we're driving up to, uh, you know, the haunting of Hill House or something. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it's yeah, it does kind of give this sense that oh, I hope they aren't followed, you know. But mm -hmm. I guess maybe they are. I guess. Yeah. Uh, or maybe it's just coincidence. Um, I mean, at this point, looking at it in retrospect, I'm guessing that they really were followed the whole way there. But either way, yeah, I'm guessing that's what it's going for is building this sense of, oh, are they still being followed or are they not? Um, but don't get me wrong, it doesn't do that very well. And it just seems really uh, – the, the naming seems out of nowhere. It seems to be like people have all these weird names, like the mm -hmm. dark one. Like this sounds like a fantasy almost. This is some yeah. quasi-dystopian or post-apocalyptic fantasy with different characters. But there's still quite a bit of law and order actually because we do have the police – 
And there are these really diligent lawyers still around, apparently, because when they right. get Johnny out of um, jail, I'm, I'm thinking, wow, there, there still is, you know, I thought the civil society had broken down with the halls of justice, but no, it is alive and well. Yeah, there's movie. still some sense of justice here, but albeit... It kind of there is a sense given here that it's not going to be lasting too long, and that this biker gang uh, and other people like it are going to be the ones that end up bringing it down sometime into the future. And we do kind of see this with Max here at the very end, where he does kind of go insane. Uh, kind of give this sense that maybe the rest of the rest of the police force is headed that way. Uh, maybe it's yeah, it's it's very much a uh, it's one of those things. <laughs> Where it it kind of doesn't really give too much of an answer. It kind of just leaves it up to the audience to, I guess, imagine what's going to happen in the future. Now there are sequels to this movie, of course, but yeah, the in terms of its in terms of the society's like state, in terms of like keeping the justice and everything in order, there is very much on the I guess like I mentioned in the, in the summary on the brink of collapse. Yes, Max becomes a vigilante at the end. He yes. flouts the law, and in some ways you could say he becomes no better than the gang because he right. is still – he's committing crimes just like they are in brutal ways. So right. we're left with a morally – in some ways morally ambiguous because you do want to understand – his motivations for wanting to get revenge, but also just to stop this evil gang. But right. nevertheless, we can't fully excuse his actions because you can't just go and run people down right. and uh, blow them up, you know, just because they've done bad things to you. Right. And I would say that there's at the very end, the last, uh, I guess he gives Johnny the boy, like a, a, uh, a dilemma, more or less. It's a moral. It's a dilemma that he gives him when he chains him to the vehicle, and he says, "You can either spend ten minutes and cut through the uh, the reinforced chain that is on your handcuffs and probably die, or you can cut off your own foot and be more likely to live because it's going to, you know, it's going to explode very soon." So he does. It's not like he's completely dooming him to to die right there. It's more of he's giving him. He's going to be losing something pretty substantial if he wants to live. It's it's it gives it a sense that Max still has a little bit of humanity in him, a little bit of justice in him, but he's definitely turned, I guess, to more of the dark side uh, in the story, where he is very much being not as ethical in his ways of pursuit than he had in the past. Which I mean, it there is a lead into it. It's not like completely out of nowhere because they do kill his family in this series. Well, they do they seriously injure Jess. They they just stated that she sounds like she's going to make it, but Sprague is dead. He does die before they get to the hospital. So there is this sense that maybe there is still a little bit of humanity left in in Max, but the 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 fact that the gang has kind of pushed him to be what he is there at the very end is more of the main focus here. Yeah. I'll I'll disagree. I don't really think there's really much humanity left in Max. He is Mad Max now, where he kind of seems to be devoid of a conscience. He presents Johnny with these more so sadistic options of cutting off his foot or um, cutting through the chain or something. Either way, you're going to die from blood loss or you're going to burn alive or something. And he... So, but, but bring back into that kind of moral ambiguity here is he doesn't run down toe cutter 
He just yeah. leads Toe Cutter to his death, which makes me think, okay, um, you know, he, he doesn't do that. So that kind of still gives us like, we can still root for him, but then he does blow up Johnny. So to me, he seems to ultimately land on the dark side of the spectrum. Yeah, I guess, I mean, I guess let me explain my, uh, let me explain my opinion a bit better because what I mean by humanity here, I guess I don't really mean it in the best way. Uh, there's not much there. It's I would say there is some humanity left, but whatever is there is very, very little because he does give Johnny a choice. He doesn't kill him uh, outright. He does have a, give him the chance to live, albeit he will lose, most likely lose a leg in the process. Once again, there's he's letting he's giving them the choice Johnny to live but at the same time he's going to lose something so it's not necessarily that it's good that he does this because there is definitely a, a better sense of bad but he at least could have killed Johnny very easily in this in this scene but he doesn't outright he doesn't do it directly he d- lets him he does give him a chance to live once again though there isn't much humanity left in Max if really if any because he does drive away with really this expression of I'm glad that's done. I really don't care. Yes, you're, you're right. And I will say the film does a good job towards the end here of make, like just making you feel like, yes, I want Max to get revenge. I want him to just, you know, shoot these guys and, mm-hmm. and kill them. So revenge is something we, we shouldn't be rooting for. Right. But nevertheless, the movie does a good job of making us feel that way and that's you know good narratives can be effective that way but you should always be conscientious of what the movie is steering you towards and ultimately kind of wanting you to root for and land on in the end and so i would say i was i did find myself rooting for a fairly gruesome revenge i will admit that but the more i think about that the more i think ah i probably shouldn't be um putting in my notes yeah he needs to you know blow his brains out that's a right. little that's a i'm gonna i went a little mad too i guess yeah. they're towards the end yeah. yeah and i mean to be fair this really could be read as more of a cautionary tale that and now this isn't exactly stated aside from one scene but this pursuit of oil um that especially in the time that this was especially the time that this was the inception of Mad Max came around uh, is something that has kind of taken the society and almost controlled it, uh, at least when the oil crisis hit around 1973. And there is one scene in this movie where they, where the biker gang does sabotage this uh, oil tanker, but it's really only one scene. So it's kind of hard to say that that's what the whole movie is based around. Um, but yeah, given the setting that it is set in, the setting that it creates here where it is kind of post-apocalyptic everyone's already kind of gone crazy aside from the law i mean it does make a bit more sense as to why he does end up going this route why max does end up becoming more revengeful than anything but i am with you it it is at a point where it does end on this moral gray area where it asks is there a better way he could have handled this uh at the same time though uh he did they did kill his his son and it seriously injure his wife and i'm assuming that she, i'm assuming she dies in the second one or isn't alive in the second one either way yeah it does bring up this moral question of is it right that he did this in the end uh should he have done this or was there even a, a better alternative to taking care of the gang instead of stooping down more or less to their level and that's why i thought they had 
resolved that issue because he doesn't run over Toe Cutter. He lets Toe Cutter, you know, seal his own grave by running into a truck. And I thought, okay, that way we can still say that Max ended Toe Cutter's evil reign, but he necessarily didn't have to take revenge himself. Right. So despite Toe Cutter's death being unsatisfying, I would say in um, that sense of just basically just kind of drove him into a truck. Um, It still worked out better that way. But then when he does go and take out Johnny in the way that he does, then uh, because I'm thinking, okay, toe cutter's gone. Where do they go from here? Well, they go to Johnny. Okay. And I I was surprised they even did that because I wasn't even thinking about Johnny as some villain. We had to resolve his his arc there. But we do. And to me, it says Max is landing more on the dark side because of this revenge of kind of what he does clearly he's become insane and this narrative is nothing new it's in fact really cliche um and especially more so after the fact now even before this it's a classic revenge tale right okay we've seen this so many times where they kill his wife and child either on purpose or on accident and he goes on a revenge killing spree examples are robocop the punisher spawn even like upgrade more recently and there are we put in there uh, john wick as well but that one has to do with a dog than it does a family yep that's exactly right john wick so there are a ton of examples um even more so than this so in that way the story is very rote to join the classic cliche they killed my wife and child i'm going to kill all of them right i can give it a little bit of pass because that story doesn't exactly come into play until like the last yeah, 15 Five. minutes. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, yeah. it's it's very much a, it, it is a cliche, I'll give you that. But it is something that is not necessarily as big of a focus as, I guess, the world building is here. Because uh, that is pretty much what the movie wants to focus on more, is setting up this insane world than it is uh, he than it is Mad Max trying, Max trying to get revenge. That does happen, but not really till the last 15 minutes. Albeit, it is a rather cliche arc or cliche reason why he does go against this and i think if they're going to go with this pure revenge then they should have had max like when he was chasing these other bikers he should have like just ran them over he should have ran over toe cutter if he's just going to go after johnny like this and yeah let him blow up and um i i mean i can't see a bit of what you're saying because they leave the explosion till the end to see ooh, where will it end but right. yeah so i guess i was a bit unsatisfied with that um, I will say, um, when they pull vault onto the tanker truck, didn't that make you think of uh, Fury Road? Yep, yeah, it absolutely did, and I wonder if that was kind of some of their inspiration for what would become Fury Road in the future. Um, with that scene, I'll give you, I'll, I'll give you this. I think that uh, for me personally, I do, and I do like that it ends with this. Does we don't really know it? We don't really know if Johnny died or not. I mean, it's very heavily implied that he did, but there is still that small chance that he did survive. More, what I'm trying to say is, both with toy toy cutter, both with toe cutter and with Johnny the boy, Max does it. It's it asks that question. It makes a statement that kind of comes up in Batman Begins, where I don't have to save you. No, I'm not going to kill you, but I don't have to save you. Um, more as more with toe cutter than it's with Johnny the Boy because Johnny the Boy he sets up that situation for him and then walks away. Still a chance that he lived, although highly doubtful. And I do I actually kind of enjoy seeing this moral dilemma where it we don't know necessarily 
if that he did survive or not. But at the same time, he does have a small smidgen of humanity left in him to let this happen. At the same time, though, he does set them up, set up the situation outright. I couldn't help but think Max turned into Jigsaw, though, because he gives him this choice from the first Saw movie to hack through your ankle or maybe the chain or just blow up at at the end of the timer and die. I mean, this, I got to say, whoever created it, Lee Wannell and Saw, they just said they watched Mad Max. They watched this final scene and they said, "Okay, we're going to make a movie based around all of this because all three Mm -hmm. options is the basis of the first Saw film. Yep. <laughs> I still have yet to see that, but I do know that that I do know that part of it. But I still have mm-hmm. yet to see really I guess any of those. So Well, you're you're not missing out. So I've heard no. the first is the best. It's Everything fine. else past it is mediocre to bad. I gotta say though, how this movie just ends, I was a little surprised because it, it cuts quick. Yeah. Once the car explodes behind Max, which is also kind of a cliche to have the whatever explode behind our main character. Uh, yeah, fade to black, that's it. <laughs> Rolling the credits. Yep, credits. Quick, fast. Yep. Okay, we're, we're already at an hour and a half. We gotta go. Gotta go. Yeah, pretty pretty <laughs> abrupt. Pretty abrupt. Yeah, I, I will say uh, it's kind of weird because we end with a long shot of the car, ominous music, and then credits of light, moody jazz, it felt like. Yeah. <laughs> Another tone shift just kind of comes out of nowhere. Yeah. So, Alan, what is your rating and recommendation for Mad Max? I won't deny that Mad Max is rather experimental with, I guess, everything it's trying to do. Um, It's very clear that this has a pretty big legacy that it's made on, I guess, just kind of filmmaking in general. There have been three sequels now after this one. Uh, So, and it does kind of go to, it also does kind of go to show how in, I guess, how impactful in independent filmmaking can be. At the same time, though, I do have to ask the question of, does this film still hold up when it was released? And that's a pretty a pretty easy answer for me, no. There are a lot of sequences here that are rather cheesy, very much a product of the times, uh, not as, I guess, immersive as maybe a film like Fury Road would be. But... At the same time, I also cannot deny how important this movie is, just kind of just to filmmaking in general, and the way that it was cra- the way it was crafted is super interesting because of how similar it was in terms of structure and uh, editing as the film is trying to portray. I also really do enjoy this ending that is somewhat of a moral question. It's not really clear as to why as to which side uh, Max lands on in terms of say moral ambiguity it doesn't really know it 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 very much leaves it up to the audience to kind of uh choose if johnny the boy survived at the same time though pretty much all humanity from max is gone at this point in the end i think it's i think it's an important film but also one that due to the times has kind of kind of lost its steam so in the end i get a six out of ten it's uh, it's a very mild recommend from me it's pushing it a bit uh, on, from my standpoint, there is a big, there is also a big sequence here where it's just kind of nothing really happens when he goes on vacation. So six out of ten, very very mild recommend though. I appreciate what George Miller started here in his directorial debut of Mad Max. 
His action scenes are incredibly well shot. They're intense. The score and cinematography gives this film a major horror vibe, and the setting of Australia is nicely utilized. Gibson does okay, and so does everyone else, but Burns does steal the show as the sadistic, psychotic toe-cutter. Unfortunately, this is not a compelling story, nor an interesting watch. Towards the end, I found myself clock-watching, hoping the film would end soon because I felt it was just being dragged out. I like what Miller is attempting to flesh out, but with this small of a budget and this sparse of a script, it falls short of a worthwhile watch. Mad Max receives 5 stars out of 10, with a mild not recommend. Although next week, I'm excited because I heard Mad Max 2 is the best, aside from Fury Road. So yeah. I, I have looked at the budget. It is a much higher budget than it was previously. So it does give me a little bit of hope uh, to see what Miller is able to do, uh, I guess, with uh, a sequel and see where he's going to take it. Yeah, I am really looking forward to that as well because the this movie has a seven on IMDb. Yep. Which is, it's fine. It's good. It's okay. But the sequel has a 7.6, which is much higher. Right. It's also interesting to note that the Rotten Tomato score, I did look this up, no cinema score for any of them aside from Fury Road. But the cinema score for Mad Max, the original here is, I believe, a 90%? Yeah, 90%, yeah. which is really high. <laughs> I mean, I was kind of a bit surprised by that one. Yes, I did watch this through your Plex server, and it's pulling in the Rotten Tomato scores. Yep. So I did see that the critic score gave it a 90%, just incredible score and i think for the audience score it was around a 79 so yeah this movie is well beloved i know jacob over at now playing he really enjoys these movies i uh follow him on letterbox so i check what score he gave this film he gave it i don't know when he gave it but he he has it currently listed there as a nine out of ten. Oh wow and i'm pretty respectable it is and i know your original score was much higher than yeah, what you I th- gave. I think I gave it a seven. My original score was a seven when I first watched it. On Letterbox, um, you have it at an eight. Yeah, probably do. Uh, I haven't used Reddit. I haven't used Letterbox in so long, so that I'm sure right. that there are plenty of scores in there that are completely outdated now. <laughs> so I was I was interested to see because you and Jacob had given this such a high score. I was wondering yeah. how your thoughts would change coming into it and i was wondering i thought is this going to be one of those situations where alan says eight out of ten strongest recommends just top notch and then i'm like five out of ten no way (laughs) and we would be so (laughs) offset but we were pretty close with where we landed and i did toy with i did toy with giving this a very mild recommend like you did but ultimately i thought would i return to this no, so I just don't see why I could give anybody a recommend with this. So that's that's just a little bit more explanation yeah. as to my rating, but it's like I said, it's borderline. Yeah, I I like I like I mentioned it with my my score here too. It's it's I'm pushing pretty hard to give it a recommend. It's more to do with that legacy factor is what if it True. didn't have that I it probably wouldn't be a recommend for me. But because of how much it's left on the filmmaking community is in general. Uh, I find that to be recommendable, uh, at least in terms of what this movie's trying. Also, how the movie is also made, and that's the biggest reason for me. But that was, the I guess, the deciding I, factor. Yeah, 
Right. And the only way I could recommend this is if you really, really do enjoy Fury Road and you're just really intrigued to see the very roots of this film, then mm -hmm. in that way, go ahead and give it a watch and see where its roots are. But to the audience at large, no, that's a no. Yeah. Well, listeners, thank you so much for joining us. Alan, thank you for joining me. Sure thing. And like we said, we will be coming back to you next week with The Road Warrior Mad Max 2. I am looking forward to that, to seeing kind of what more they can do to amp up the story. Now that I feel like this, the third act is really a setup for the story I was thinking we were going to get. Yeah, probably. yeah, I'm I'm excited too because I've heard from many people that I know really well. This is the best one, aside from Fury Road, of course. Yes, I'm looking forward to it. So, listeners, make sure that you stay tuned for that. And the best way to do that is to go ahead and subscribe to the podcast right now. And also, while you're at it, if you're listening on iTunes, please go ahead and give us a five star rating. That does help us in the rankings get noticed by other people who want to uh, have a good time listening to us talk about movies and talk about movies with us because, of course, we love talking about movies and we love talking about them with you. Also, go ahead and subscribe through your favorite social media platform. Those links are in the description below. Very easy to find. And also, we would appreciate it if you want to head over to our Patreon page and just give us a couple bucks. It helps keep this podcast free. It helps keep the lights on for creating this um, podcast. But you're not giving. You're not just giving us money and getting nothing in return. You will get bonus uh, podcasts, bonus reviews, movie commentaries, Q and A's with us, updates what we think about the latest movie trailers. You'll get all kinds of great content that is yours to keep for just uh, the price of a Starbucks cup of coffee. You get a lot more. Uh, worth out of that so go ahead and head on over to our patreon page that link is in the description below it's impossible to miss listeners we want to say uh, thank you again for joining us and we will look forward to next week as we discuss the road warrior